Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Over the last month, we have been previewing the Power Five conferences, and we're almost done with that. But I wanted to give some attention to the Group of Five conferences and spend some time specifically talking about Notre Dame. We'll do both of those things on this podcast. To talk G5 conferences from the American to the Sun Belt, we have Chris Vanini, who does a great job of digging into the non-Power 5 leagues for the athletic. And then to talk Notre Dame, we bring in Pete Sampson, also of the athletic, to examine what to expect from the Fighting Irish as a follow-up to their playoff appearance in 2018. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One, Apple Podcast, just about anywhere you get your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast from The Athletic, Chris Vanini does a great job of covering the schools that are not in the Power Five, that we tend to forget, that we often neglect, like I am right now, by sticking them all in one podcast. But I did want to get to all these conferences and give them their due. In the past, we haven't done a preview for those conferences, but I kind of want to do that this year. And nobody covers these teams better than Chris because it is all he does is cover these teams. So thanks a lot, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me, and and thanks for uh, devoting some time to uh, a group of schools that uh, I think deserve it. Yeah, I mean, there are some really fascinating stories and interesting races, and I I guess you have to start with, well, let's lay out this. The group of five plays for, realistically speaking, that one automatic spot in the New Year's Six games. You know, I know UCF and a whole bunch of teams would like to expect more and actually get a play, a, a work, be working towards a playoff spot. But again, we we don't necessarily need to debate that. We know that that's not necessarily fair, but that's also the way life is in in the current playoff system. I want to throw that out only because this year that spot is in the Cotton Bowl. So at times we might reference spot in the Cotton Bowl or New Year's Six Bowl, but they're all charging towards a spot in the Cotton Bowl with the best G five champion ending up there. It has been, uh, since we've had this system in place, the American sort of dominating that spot, winning it three times, uh, while the MAC has gotten it once with Western Michigan and the Mountain West once with Boise State. But it was a pretty good year last year for the Mountain West. Let's start with them. I think there has been this conventional wisdom, certainly spouted by me, that the American has sort of separated itself from the other G5 conferences, though last year... You know, if you look at the numbers, the Mountain West was every bit the league that the American was. Boise State's the perennial favorite, but talk me out of why Boise State shouldn't win that conference this year. Right. I think the Mountain West was better at the top last year because you had Boise State, you had Utah State, you had Fresno State all win uh, at least 10 games. Uh, the American, I think, was deeper, but if you know UCF was – trailing double digits at halftime of their conference championship game. If they had lost that, the G, the New Year's Six spot would have gone to what ended up being Fresno State. Boise State is, is you know, they're, they're, they're like I said, they're, they're always the favorite. They've got a lot of experience coming back on both sides of the ball. The biggest question is that quarterback. They've, just, they've got a battle going. Brett Rippon is gone after um, a long career there, breaking most, a bunch of school records. It's really the only question we have about Boise is can they find a quarterback? And elsewhere in the league, there are more questions. You know, Utah State brings back Jordan Love, a really good quarterback, but that's about it. They got they have to replace a ton on both sides of the ball. There, Fresno State has a new quarterback as well. Uh, they they haven't identified Tedford says, but but uh, they got to replace a lot on defense and at wide receiver as well. So there's a lot of questions for a lot of teams here. I, I think Boise State should be the favorite, but especially in the West, 
division, which is not the one Boise's in. I think there there could be a lot of uh, a lot of shakeup in how that turns out. I think you have to expect Fresno. It's been an amazing, amazing past couple of seasons with uh, Jeff Tedford at the helm there, and as someone who was damn skeptical about that hire. I have eaten a lot of crow over the last couple of years because he's done a tremendous job at Fresno State. They look like the old Pat Hill Fresno State at this point. However, ton of changeover this year. They lost a lot of key players. I guess the question out west with the Mountain West is, you know, can San Diego State took a little bit of a step back last year. Is it San Diego State regaining its footing? Are there some of the other teams that have sort of been lost in the wilderness a little bit out there? Nevada eh, took some steps forward last year. UNLV. Is there a surprise lingering on the west side of that conference because maybe Fresno has to is going to come back to the pack? Yeah, San Diego State really kind of got lost after, you know, they started last year, I think, 7-2. and two. And then they lost their final four games. They, they, they lost to UNLV. They got shut out in their bowl game against Hawaii to, to finish the year at, at seven and six after multiple ten win seasons competing for for Mountain West championships. And you know, Rocky Long points to injuries for one. There, there was there was a lot uh, all over the board on injuries, but he's also you know changing up what they do on offense in kind of a big way. And that they're moving. He says they're moving to a, a spread look. It's still going to be run. I mean, this is one of the few teams left in 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 major college football that that lines up like like an old like an old pro team and and runs the ball at you a ton. They are going to try to do a lot of the same things, but but out of the spread. And Rocky Long pointed to things like you know the amount of time it would take to teach a quarterback how to take a snap under center because so many quarterbacks coming in don't know how to do that. He thinks it'll help lead to more big plays in the running game. Uh, it, 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 it's a real, it's a real, uh, I think, uh, uh, he, he's admitting that he's trying to catch up with the times now after San Diego State tried to go a different way from everybody else. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how that'll work. The defense should be good as always. It kind of fell apart at the end of last year, but defense should be, be good as always. They're, they're breaking in some new players on offense, but Juwan Washington is back at running back. Um, and if he and he was banged up a bit last year, so I, I, San Diego State's a team I think to watch. They're usually right up there for the Mountain West. Yeah, is there every, every year competing for the team? They just they're going to look a bit different, and you know, can they get out of that funk that they had at the end of last year? Is there a little bit of any anything that looks like a dark horse in either side of that those uh, of the Mountain West? Somebody maybe coming off of a losing year or a mediocre year that you think you know what? Because I think that's one of the things that's interesting about the Group of Five conferences is there's not so much clear pecking order, right? And I think in the Power Five conferences you have certain teams that are clearly toward the top every year, whether it's Ohio State in the Big Ten and Alabama in the SEC and Oklahoma in the Big 12. I think in the group of five, one of the, one of the cool things about those conferences is there is usually a fair amount of room to grow. You can get your program together and surge toward the top. Now, listen, there are still some perennial contenders, but I think one of the fun things about, again, those, those conferences is there's usually a little more room to grow and you get some surprise teams. I'm going to probably do this with each of the five conferences that we're going to go through, but give me one team that you say that's a dark horse, that's a team that maybe was okay last year but has a chance to contend, not necessarily win, but contend this year. I'm going to look at Hawaii. You know, they, they got off to kind of a hot start last year, played really early in the season, uh, kind of tumbled down the stretch and finished 8-6. and six. But they've got nine starters back on both sides of the ball. Cole McDonald is back and, and revealed in the offseason that, that he was basically dealing with uh, several injuries throughout the year. Um, he really fits in that, that, um, that style of offense. Nick Rolovich likes to run. Uh, they really feel like they've got an identity now uh, after kind of an up-and-down first few years under Rolovich and a, a really experienced team in a division that has a lot of questions. Like they're, they're, they're with Fresno State, they're with Nevada, they're with San Diego State, San Jose State, and UNLV. So I, I think Hawaii has a chance to, to maybe really take a step up and, and contend for the Mountain West based on all, all the, the experience they have coming back um, coming off what they did last year. All right. So the last thing I'll ask you with each of them is 
Give me who plays for the conference championship. All these conferences have championship games now, and who wins it. I'll go with Boise State and Fresno State, which I think will actually end up being the preseason media picks, and then Boise State uh, winning it all. Okay. Or, uh, winning the Mountain West. Gotcha. Um, heading over to the AAC, which has been, again, sort of the dominant conference out of these conferences, Power Six, right? I mean, they are they play this a little differently over in the American. While I think Mountain West aspires to bigger and better things, they do it in a little more low-key way. And I think the other two con- or the other three conferences, the MAC, the Sun Belt, and Conference USA, sort of look at this playoff system in college football at large and say, you know what, we're more concentrating on being the best of our peer groups. We're not necessarily looking to take down the Power 5 structure. We're just happy to be sort of in the structure. That is definitely not the way Mike Oresco approaches this. That is definitely not the way UCF AD Danny White approaches this. They want in a seat at the big boy table. I think to a certain degree, maybe UCF has been the face of that movement. Can UCF continue what has been one of the great runs of the outsider upheaval runs in college football in recent memory? So they're my pick to win the league but I think they're a lot closer to everybody else than they have been the last two years, mostly because Mackenzie Milton is not there, or at least not playing. Mackenzie Milton, the, the quarterback last year who got Heisman votes, um, injured his knee in a, a gruesome knee injury at the end of last season, and he's out for all of this year. Uh, if he plays football again, they're hoping for, for 2020. So that left them down to a two-man quarterback race between Daryl Mack, who, who filled in for Milton and was up and down, and then Brandon Wimbush, a transfer from Notre Dame. Mack got hurt at the beginning of uh, right before fall camp, so it looked like Wimbush is the guy right now. Um, it sounds like he has really fit in from from a um, from a cultural standpoint. He's really uh, befriended a lot of guys on the team and has really fit in there and I think taken over a leadership role. It just comes down to what he can do on the field. He's he's had turnover problems. He's had accuracy problems because everywhere else on that offense, they've got. They've got receivers and running backs. I would put up with, um, would, I'd put up with all sorts of Power Five teams. Uh, UCF. They have all sorts of speed. Um, the, the, the talent that Scott Frost brought in was 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 very good. They have to other side of the ball. They have to to fix the defensive line. They have to replace most of it. But this is still a team I think that's going to score a ton of points, move the ball really fast, and and contend for that New Year's sixth berth again. The issue is there are other teams in this conference that. Uh, may take them down right and on the east side there are teams that may even have a chance to take them down and listen you know i i think they were a juggernaut two years ago they went undefeated in the conference uh ucf did last year but clearly there were other teams in the conference that sort of closed the gap a bit temple played them pretty tight at ucf memphis played them tight a couple of times they played maybe their best game of the season against a, a good cincinnati team but, you know, again, the gap sort of closed last year. This year, I, you know, as much as UCF is the favorite, I think a lot of folks, you know, we were both at their media days, looked at Cincinnati and thought, yeah, that's a legitimate challenger. Maybe even Temple again being a legitimate challenger. Of those two, which one do you think has the best chance to overtake the UCF? I know you're picking the UCF, but which one out of Temple or Cincinnati has the best chance to overtake them? I think Cincinnati, in large part because of the consistency, you know, Temple's got a coaching change. Actually, kind of had two coaching changes. Cincinnati, (laughs) you know, they bring a ton back on both sides of the ball. They have to to rework the defensive line. But Luke Fickle, you know, talking to him at at media day, he, compared to previous years, he seems incredibly comfortable and confident with where he is, with where the team is. He's no longer, you know, getting used to being a head coach and dealing with all that. He knows what he's got. He knows what he has from his guys. And UCF has to travel to Cincinnati um, this year. I mean, they have to travel to Cincinnati and Temple, but I think getting them at at Nippert Stadium uh, will be big for Cincinnati. So between those two, I think Cincinnati is is more likely. However, Cincinnati has an incredibly difficult schedule, and that's why in some places you see an over-under win total around like six or seven um, but I, I think uh, between the two, Cincinnati is more likely to, to knock UCF off. Now, Memphis has been knocking on the door the last couple of years. Memphis, it's odd. In some sense, if you glance at just the raw record, I believe Memphis went 8-5 and five last year, lost three conference games. So it almost, on one hand, it almost looked like a little bit of a step-back year for Memphis. 
On the other hand, if you dive a little deeper into those results, again, they played UCF great twice, not just once, but twice. Had them down, I think, heading into the second half. You know, lost a really close bowl game. So they were also a team that had a couple of games sort of get away from them where they could have easily been 10-2 and or 11-3 and with some big things on their resume. It seems like this would be the opportunity for Mike Norvell and Memphis to sort of have the breakthrough season represent the conference, win the conference, and then maybe go on to that G5 uh, spot in the New Year's Six Bowls. This seems to be what they've been building towards. UCF is a little bit down, not, not, not way down, but maybe has taken a half a step back, and Memphis seems loaded and ready to go in this conference. I think the best news for Memphis this year is that UCF is not on the regular season schedule. They are 0-4 against UCF in the past two years, They've their their all time record against UCF is is, is bad, but but uh, the last few years Memphis has done everything well except for UCF. They led them, I think, by double digits at halftime in both games last year, and you know they let two UCF games get away. They they miss a field goal at the end of the bowl game. They they blow a game against the Navy early in the season. Really, a team that, like you said, should have been better than I think ended up eight and six. And this year they bring back. Um, a ton on both sides of the ball. Brady White is in his second year as, as a starter now, a really experienced guy who's already, I think, going for his master's degree, I think, um, transfer from Arizona State. Uh, he He's a bit polarizing when it comes to Memphis fans. He, he has some good and some bad. He had some bad turnovers late in the season. Um, maybe the offense wasn't as explosive in the passing game as they'd like because they relied so much on Daryl Henderson and the running game last year. But even though Daryl Henderson's gone, even though Tony Pollard, an explosive running back receiver, kick returner guy is gone, there's still a lot of offensive skill. DeMonte Cox, a receiver, is really good. And Patrick Taylor will now probably be the bell cow at running back. He can, uh, he's a very good runner at Russ for 1,000 yards last year as a backup. And, and can make plays out of the backfield. And that defense last year was full of a lot of freshmen and sophomores because they had to replace a number of guys. Now those guys are, are sophomores and juniors. It's a much more experienced defense. Memphis is my pick to come out of uh, the West division, and I think of anybody in the whole league is, is most likely outside of UCF to win the conference. The conventional wisdom has been the West it has been overall better, and not just a conventional wisdom. I think it plays out on the field. The West in the AAC has been better than the East. The West is a little deeper. It, it does look a little like Memphis maybe has a chance to separate itself from the West a little bit this year. However, you know, Dana Holgerson is going to have a really good offense at Houston again. Willie Fritz has been moving that Tulane program you know, on a steady upward trajectory since he got there. I think that year two of Sonny Dykes at SMU could produce a few more wins. I would be shocked if Navy is bad again. Uh, I just don't think that's in the culture there. I, and I think they, they brought in a new defensive coordinator, so to sure, sure up things there. I think Navy has a chance to be sort of a, a really big surprise team. Tulsa's still sort of trying to find its way. Maybe has even taken a little slide back with Philip Montgomery. But there's a lot of possibilities of just things getting weird in the West there because I think from top to bottom you could see upsets get sprung. Right. The, the East has most of the heavy hitters with the Cincinnati's, the UCF, USF, even Temple. The West, I, but, but I think this year, I think both divisions are going to be pretty even in terms of uh, how they, they beat each other up. You mentioned, you know, I, I was at SMU the other day and they really think that they have some 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 Big 12 quality guys there on especially on offense especially at wide receiver I mean Shane a lot of them are former Big 12 people Shane Bouchel the former Texas quarterback is, is now the QB there they've got some some other transfer wide receivers uh, who have come in I, I SMU and Tulane I think are real uh, are teams that could really take big jumps Tulane finished the season really strong when Justin McMillan took over a quarterback they won I think their last four games had a dominating performance in the bowl win uh, so I do think the West is going to be a bit better than it was last year. You know, last year, with two weeks to go in the season, uh, I'm pretty sure it was two weeks to go, SMU still had a chance to win the division. They, they had No one had really jumped out in that division. Houston and Memphis had, had underachieved to that point. And so SMU was actually in a position where it could have won the division but two weeks ago, and it finished the season 5-7, and seven, didn't even make a bowl game. That's kind of how 
kind of messy that division was last year. This year, I think just about everybody in it should be better than they were a year ago. Would SMU be your dark horse there again as a team that went five and seven and maybe could step up and contend? You know, right? I mean, you know, I kind of almost forgot Shane Bouchelle's there, and that's a guy who started games as a freshman for Texas. Yeah, it's it's, it's SMU or Tulane. I I, I mean, I've had to pick one. Uh, I'd probably say Tulane just because of how they finished the season and and they had some real momentum. SMU lost to Tulsa in the last game of the year and pretty embarrassing loss to miss out on a bowl game. But SM, you know, SMU's got last year, they were so short on, on offensive and defensive line bodies. They've got a lot more guys there. They're, they're bigger. They've got uh, Sonny Texas brought in a ton of transfers in his two years there. And I think that's really increased the, the talent level. If Shane Bouchelle is the guy that they think he can be, I think this offense is going to put up quite a bit of points. Let's hit some action now. And when we talk about conferences where the difference between the top and the bottom can be razor thin, you know, so that makes it from year to year. You never quite know who's going to make a big step forward or a big step back. I mean, that really is the MAC. They, you know, I had one coach who used to coach in the MAC, you know, describe it as listen, it's a brick and mortar conference. None of those programs are that dramatically different from the other. North, Northern Illinois has sort of come up with a formula that works and has separated itself a little bit from the pack and been consistently good for a long time. Toledo has a little better facilities and maybe a little more money flowing into that program, and they've been able to separate and be a little more consistently good. But other than that, man, you could you know you could shake this up from year to year. Even the Kent States in recent history have risen and and, and gotten themselves to the uh, to the MAC championship game. Frank Solich is on a pretty nice run in Ohio. You get some intrigue in the West because Northern Illinois, one of the power teams there, the consistent power teams, has a coaching change. So I think that throws. Um, maybe a little bit of a monkey wrench into that situation as far as some uncertainty goes. What do you look at when you see the MAC? And let's start with Ohio, which, as great a job as Frank Solich done, has done there, they are still looking for that elusive MAC championship. I believe we are now going on almost fifty years. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And, and you know, the last couple of years have seemed like his best teams, and they. Haven't been able to. They, they've just lost untimely games. A couple of years ago, they lose to, to Akron, and Akron ends up surprisingly winning the division. Last year, they had uh, a couple of stumbles. They they end they end up, I think, beating Buffalo pretty handily late in the season. But it was it was too late, and Buffalo ended up winning the division this year. You know, Nathan Rourke is back at quarterback. He should be really good. Probably the top quarterback in the country. Um, but they've got to find new receivers and running backs for him, him to work with. I think that's the biggest question with this Ohio team. Um, uh, Jimmy Burrow, the, the, the former defense coordinator, has uh, left to to go watch son Joe Burrow at, at LSU. So there are some changes, but uh, when it comes to the East Division, I think Ohio is probably the favorite again, though there are, I think, more questions than there were the last couple of years. But, yeah, Frank Holtz has done an incredible job there, incredible consistency. But they just they 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 lose a couple games that maybe they shouldn't, and and it ends up costing them the conference. It seems like he has been there forever and will be there forever. But you know, I get the sense that maybe we're coming close to a change there at Ohio. That you know, listen from a pure journalism standpoint, it would be pretty cool if he were to win it this year, right off into the sunset, uh, at about seventy five years old, and, and head toward retirement, hand the program over. You get any sense that there is a a plan there for a transition, and and that that transition could be coming up soon? Well, I visited Athens last fall camp, and and you know Frank was you know, he's kind of always been the same, just kind of a generally quiet, nice nice guy who who uh, says he's going to keep doing it as long as he likes doing it. And he still likes doing it. He's he's had right. assistant coaches there who have been there for his entire time. Burrow, Burrow was one of them. I, I, I would imagine uh, if there is a change that that he will kind of get to pick his successor, whether it's Tim Albin or, or some of the other guys that are on staff. There would just would be kind of interesting after the way Frank Solich took over Nebraska if if he could this time around get to be a guy who who uh, picks his uh, successor. But yeah, seventy four right now. He's about to turn seventy five in a month. He's he's the oldest coach in college football now with 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 Bill Snyder gone and he he'll, they have a, they have a um, new athletic director too. Jim Shouse left 
to take a, a conference commissioner job elsewhere. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much that will change things, but he'll also be Frank will also be working with uh, some new leadership. Again, the West tends to be looked at as a little bit more of the power side there. Uh, Toledo has a really good offense and an interesting young coach in Jason Candle. Northern Illinois replaces a coach, so that gives a little bit of uncertainty there. Western Michigan, actually, you know, I I think a lot of people wondered what would happen after P.J. Fleck left and they had that undefeated team. Well, Tim Lester walks in there, former quarterback, and has done a pretty nice job and actually sets up what's expected to be a contending team this year. What do you look for in the West as it doesn't look like there is a clear power, but, it, you know, I think the power of the conference as a whole sort of lies on that side. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Eastern Michigan, Northern Illinois, Toledo, or Western Michigan could all win that division and, and the conference. You know, I was, you know, in the spring, I was I was riding pretty high in Western Michigan because they had a pretty, they looked pretty good and had a pretty good record the first two years under Tim Lester until quarterback John uh, Wasink got hurt. He had, he suffered a season-ending injury two years in a row, and both times that happened, their season their season fell off. So if he could stay healthy, I thought they would have a real chance. They've got an incredibly experienced team, one of the most experienced in the country. But then they lost multiple receivers to transfer. Their top one of their top receivers transferred to Michigan State. They've lost some other guys. So now we got to find out what they can do in the passing game with some different receivers. Um, some surprising turnover there at a time that I thought uh, everything was kind of coming together. Toledo's kind of similar. They got to find some new receivers after losing a bunch. They've got a quarterback in, in Mitchell uh, Guad Guadani. I'm not quite sure how to say it. Um, Eastern Michigan is another team. Eastern Michigan, they, they, they every game they play comes down to one possession. The last few years, it, it's pretty crazy. It's something like, oh, like swear it's. Every last three years, ton of games coming down to the very end, and most of those have not gone their way. Some people around around the program think that this could be the year that Chris Creighton breaks through and, and um, gets maybe a division title and maybe a, a bigger job if that happens. And then NIU uh, should be good defensively, like they were. We'll have to see how they look with a new offense under Thomas Hammock, the new offensive coordinator there. They're going to try to change some things up because things have been trending kind of in the wrong direction for Rod, Rod Carey there. They they won the conference last year in kind of a, a, a shocker, but it had been a bit of a slog of a season, especially offensively. So any four of those teams, I think, have, have a chance to win uh, the division. And just to, I, you misspoke there, but Thomas Hammock, the new head coach. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. called in the offensive court. Yeah, right, and a former, a former Northern Illinois running back. And you're right, you know, it's interesting, that the Rod Carey thing. They hadn't been as good as they were pre-Rod Carey or when he first took over and they had the Jordan Lynch teams and they were really, you know, played in the Orange Bowl. What they had been under Carey, though, is they had, first of all, they had taken on some pretty monumentally tough schedules because of budget issues yeah. with the school. But they always seemed to manage to find their way when it came to conference season. So they had this reputation of sort of being, yeah, maybe we get knocked around a little bit in the non-conference schedule. But by the time we got ready for conference season, they always seemed to be Northern Illinois at the end, whether they were in winning that division or playing for that division. So, yeah, it'll be they, that program seems to have the best, I would say, D. DNA to a certain degree of any of the the programs in the MAC, but we'll see how much that carries over when you have a new coaching staff. So I will ask you for your picks here: who will be in the MAC championship game and who will win the MAC? I will go with. Ooh, who's gonna be tough? Um, well, <laughs> Ohio out of the East, and uh, probably NIU out of the West, and, and I'll say uh, Ohio and Frank Solich get it this time. Yeah, I think we're all leaning towards uh, having that happen, just if nothing else, because it'll be a really good story. Let's over to head over to Conference USA. Again, another conference where, first of all, the, the main thing I still am trying to figure out is who exactly is in Conference USA, and I know that's probably a bit of a snide joke, but after conference realignment, no conference had a greater shuffling where you had to sort of sit back and look and say, okay, who's here? And then, of course, UAB goes out and comes back in. Again, another conference where 
you look at the dynamic and you could really see this is a league where somebody could take a massive step forward because that's literally what's happened, right? Lane Kiffin had the massive jump forward a couple of years ago. Last year, FIU did the same under Butch Davis. There's been a certain amount of consistency. Again, UAB goes away for a year as a program, uh, comes back, and two years later wins the conference. So lots of volatility in this conference. Who are the teams that you think are the favorites coming in on each side? Looks like Marshall and, and Southern Miss are getting some play, but what do you think? In the East, I think this comes down to Marshall and FIU um, in the West. Probably North Texas' division to lose, but but perhaps UAB and Southern Miss. Maybe La Tech give them a run. But those those are, I think, the five teams that are probably standing out a bit ahead of everybody else. Uh, All of them have uh, quarterbacks that they they really like. James Morgan at FIU, uh, Isaiah Green at Marshall, Mason Fine at North Texas, uh, and uh, Jack Abraham at, at Southern Miss, Tyler Johnston at, at UAB uh, as well, though they have to change some more. So there, there are, some, I think, some really good quarterbacks in this league. Uh, they'll just have to find some pieces around them. And I think in that sense, uh, I think North Texas is probably the favorite for the league, but they blew a handful of games last year they probably shouldn't have. And if that happens again, it's, it, it, this conference could be up to any to almost anybody. Let's stop at Lane Kiffin for a second here because Lane, the Lane train rolled into FAU and and just blew everybody away that first year. They won double digit games and won the conference and uh, and then last year a little re- reality hit. Which again, this is the life in Conference USA and a lot of Group of Five. It's hard to sustain, right? You get a couple, a little change over here, a change over there. You're trying to bring some transfers in to fill some holes. And a, a team that won 10 games could pretty easily slip back to a team that barely makes a bowl. Or in last year's case, with FAU, I don't even think they actually missed a bowl game. Yeah, they lost to Charlotte. At, uh, so surprising loss to Charlotte at the end of the year cost them a bowl game. So what, what has Lane got going on there this year? Because, again, it, you know, because of the nature of the conference, if you were to sell me on, hey, listen, I think they could contend for the conference and don't be surprised if he, he has another really good year, I, I would totally buy into that. Again, again, because I think that that's what this conference conference is well last year we expected big things out of FAU because they were bringing a, a ton back from that that team that won I think 11 games in in his first year but it, it including Devin Singletary who was they were pushing for the Heisman but it just it didn't come together they had they had uh coordinator changes and it just it never really worked and they, they end up missing a bowl game so you know he Lane, Lane's still running the offense but Charlie Weiss Jr. is now going into his second year as, as the coordinator uh, Chris Chris Robinson was suspended, but then brought back. So he it looks like he will probably be the guy at quarterback again. But they need to find new running backs. They lost two to the NFL. Um, they lost some star power on defense, especially at linebacker and in the defensive backfield. So there's, I think, a lot of questions all across the board with this team because uh, a lot of those top star players that you expected to carry last year's team it didn't work out, and now those players are gone. So it could be another kind of difficult year uh, for for Lane. It, in some senses, it feels like it's following the, the the steps that his USC deal did. You know, had a big year, come back the next year preseason number one with a quarterback back. Don't hit those expectations, and before you know it, a year later or so, he's he's fired. I don't. He's not going to get fired at FAU, but he know he he knows what he knows what happened to USC, and he's been trying to do things differently to you know, get out of that skid, but this this could be another tough year. It looks like, again, Marshall has been about as consistent as you can get in Conference USA under Doc Holliday, who's been there a long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, and this looks like another year where they're going to be in position. Again, they had a little bit of a, a, a step back a couple of years back, uh, recalibrated that program, but this looks like a year where they could find themselves. Gosh, you know, it's been one, two, three. 2014 was the last time Marshall won this conference and has even played for the conference championship. And again, it seems like that just seems like a long time. Is this a year where Marshall can finally sort of break through and get back into that conference championship game? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the division comes down to them and, and FIU. They've got a, a lot back on both sides. You know, they lost their defense coordinator, Adam Fuller, to Memphis, but brought in Brad Lambert, the former head coach at Charlotte is now taking that over. They're set at quarterback. They've got two quarterbacks that they like. Um, 
But uh, he's expected to uh, Green's expected to take a step forward now as a, as a sophomore. Got enough pieces around them. This is I think this is a pretty complete team. I think Marshall and FI, FIU are both pretty complete teams, and I think they play each other the last week of the season, and that that may be the um, yeah they do. Yeah, they play each other at Marshall the last game of the regular season that I think will probably be the one that determines uh, the division. Let me hit UAB here just because they are such a fascinating story with Bill Clark. Again, the program goes under, is gone for uh, – I think I misspoke there. Is it one year or two years? They were they were dark for two years. They were years. gone for two years. Yeah, they were gone for two years. Come back, immediately are competitive in year one and last year win the conference – uh, with a great defense, uh, just a tremendous job by Bill Clark. And, you know, people have voted for him a national coach of the year, and he was certainly well-deserving of that consideration. But did they have enough in the tank to possibly defend that title? Well, the biggest question is is the lines, both lines. They have to replace a ton. They were really big in the line, especially last year's defensive line. Huge guys, you know, they looked like an SEC defensive line just based on how, how big they were. Um They've got enough skill guys. Spencer Brown at running back uh, is back after a solid season. They like the receivers they have. And then Tyler Johnston, I mean, some of the people, they like they compare him to like Tim Tebow just in terms of the intangibles he has. He went undefeated as a high school quarterback in Alabama, um, played at Texas A&M last year and had a solid performance. I think there were 300 yards, um, was not at all shaken by the environment. They, they, think, they think Johnston – this quarterback can be really special. Uh, it, it may be a bit of a transition year a little bit, considering how much they have to replace. They lost something like 35 seniors from last year's team just because of how many Juco guys they had brought in. So now the recruiting is – now the roster development is more like a regular team. You're trying to rely on high school. You know, they were going so Juco heavy when they were rebuilding the program because they had to. Uh, but but I, I expect a step back, but if, if some of these – uh, questions in, in pieces end up fitting, then I, I think they could make a run for the division. Let's roll over to the Sun Belt, last but not least, the Fun Belt. We talk about how sometimes these Group of Five conferences, they have uh, the DNA is such that teams can make big steps forward, big steps back. What's happened, though, in the Sun Belt has been a little bit more like a Power Five in that there has been sort of a, a, a pretty clear top tier with Arkansas State doing really, really well year in and year out. They've won the conference one, two, three times and played for and been in contention a few other times since they've gotten there. Well, actually, four times, one time uh, sharing it. So they're sort of at the top tier. Appalachian State walked into that conference as an FCS team just a few years ago, other than a, a, a little bit of a glitch in a transition year. Now they have become, uh, App State's become sort of a power team in that conference. Troy's done a nice job of separating itself for the rest of that conference. With the Sun Belt, what I'll ask you is, is there a possibility that the the power structure will get upset there? Are we still looking at another year with App State, Troy, Georgia, Georgia Southern, and Arkansas? You know, and who challenges Arkansas on the other side? Louisiana seems to be have moving into that into that vicinity that last year by winning that division. So, who can, if anybody, upset the power structure in the Sun Belt? Yeah, no, I think it's. It comes down to the three teams in the East, App State, Troy, Georgia Southern, and then two in the West, Arkansas State, Louisiana. And this is, they play, uh, they play, you know, it, it's five team divisions. You play everybody in the conference except for one. So the schedules are generally all the same. Um, I, I, I think, I, I think in the East, it's App State's conference to lose again. Not only have they been the class of the league the last few years, but they bring, just everything back on both sides of the ball, other than you got to replace some quarterback cornerbacks. But Zach Thomas is, is back at quarterback. They've got a load of running backs and receivers there. Eli Drinkwitz could not walk into a better situation as, as the first-year head coach, I think. And as long as he doesn't maybe change too much, this I think App State can compete for the New Year's Six spot. And that, that I think, is what's missing from the Sun Belt to really take a step up. Because this is a league with really solid football. Three teams won 10 games last year. They're not loading up on Power 5 bye games to take a beating like they used to. Um, you've got some proud fans, some, some solid fan bases and programs with, with them and Georgia Southern and Arkansas State and stuff like that. So uh, I think the Sun Belt as a whole is very solid. The, the top five are very good teams. The bottom five have 
problems, but I think this is it's a, it's a solid league. Georgia Southern took a step up to 10 wins last year, but they've got a real tough schedule. they got to play at App State, Troy, and I think Arkansas State all this year, plus they go to LSU and Minnesota. This team, Georgia Southern team, could be better than a year ago, but probably have a worse record. Troy's going through a transition, but they've got a quarterback in place. Uh, Chip Lindsey, the new head coach there. And then Arkansas State needs a new quarterback, and that's probably the only question there because they're pretty set everywhere else. So it's, 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 it's up to five teams, three and two in each division, and I'm very excited to see how this conference race shapes out because I think it could be really, really interesting. You mentioned Chip Lindsey, the new coach at Troy, coming over. He was a offensive coordinator at Auburn. Uh, new new coach at App State as well. That may be the most intriguing thing about App State. You're right. They just have a ton of players back. And boy, Eli Drinkwitz, his agents did a really nice job of landing him at first uh, his first head coaching gig because he's at a program that has had a ton of stability. That has you know that has figured out how to be successful at two different levels. Has a formula in place there that you know has proven to be successful. And he's got a team that's ready to win right now, which, of course, brings a certain amount of stress and pressure if you're Eli Drinkwitz to get it done right now. Like, don't screw it up. That's the only problem when you're walking into that situation as a head coach and everybody's expecting just more of the same and the team is built to win now. If the team doesn't win now, hey, buddy, it's on you. So interesting match there. I wonder what your thoughts are on the match of Eli Drinkwitz, uh, the former North Carolina State. Offensive coordinator also spent some time at Boise State as a head coach at App State. Yeah, my, my biggest question is is how much of the offense is going to be built around passing versus running. I mean, Drinkwitz's quarterbacks have put up some huge numbers in the passing game. I think NC State last year was one of the pass the balls. I think they were top ten in pass attempts. Maybe um, Zach Thomas is not that kind of passer. Uh, he's very very efficient. Um, but he's also a guy who runs the ball, and they've got a, a, a stable of really good big play running backs uh, to go with them. So I'm, I, that's my biggest question is, you know, I'm talking to Drinkwitz, he wants Thomas to learn to stay in the pocket more and not necessarily break out, um, uh, give it some more time. So I think that's the biggest adjustment they'll go through. But, yeah, how much of it is going to be passing versus running? I think he knows what he has there um, in terms of talent. It's There's plenty of – very good players to get uh, the ball in the hands, and we'll see what happens. They, they've got North Carolina in non-conference play early, and then South Carolina late. So if App State, you know, is making a run throughout the season, that South Carolina game later in the year, I think, could be uh, a really interesting one to watch. So yeah, I think the question with App State is, can they break through? Right? Can they literally can they break through and put together a season? Listen, if you're playing in the Sun Belt, you probably need to go undefeated. I would think. To, to to be in play for that New Year's Six Bowl. That's how Western Michigan made it through and broke through out of the MAC. Uh, you know, otherwise, I think the, you know, the the Mountain West and the AAC have a little more you know quality of conference wins that will push you ahead. But again, this App State team, you know, they're loaded. You got a new coach, but you got a couple of spots on the schedule where you could have power five teams that maybe aren't great power five teams, but you could still beat those power five teams. Uh, it sounds like you're leaning toward them to win the conference. And what I mean, would you be inclined to pick them to to get that G six spot? Oh, excuse me, G five spot in the New Year six. You know, if if I had to pick a group of five team most likely to go undefeated, it would probably be. App State or Boise State, um, in part because of the schedules and who else is in their conference. I think the American is so deep right now that it will be very hard for UCS to do so. Um, it's very possible, but, you know, App State, North Carolina in week three, or we, I think it's week four, um, that's a very winnable game for a program in transition that hasn't been very good. They have to, you know, In conference, they have to travel to Louisiana and have to travel to Troy, um, but – they should be the more talented team in those games on November 9th, South Carolina. If they can go to an SEC team and win it, that might be that marquee win that maybe UCF didn't have the last couple of years that, that puts App State uh, into that New Year's Six spot. You're right. I think a Sunbelt team probably has to go undefeated um, to get there, just like a, a MAC team usually would because the conference uh, is not uh, – 
large enough and deep enough to 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 get that. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's very very possible with App State. It's just how do they handle this transition with a new coach? So the last thing I'll wrap up on. Obviously, you have App State there. Who do you have coming out of the West to, to challenge App State in the um, Sun Belt Championship game this year? I'll have Arkansas State. I think that they've got a lot in place there. Um, biggest question is just quarterback Logan Bonner is taking over for 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 Justice Hansen. Um, guy who doesn't have a lot of game experience, but but coaches believe can can be the guy to get the job done. They've got probably as good a group of receivers as anybody in the group of five, and um, plenty deep on, on on defense. So I think Arkansas State and App State will be the teams to meet and, and App State is the one that uh, wins the conference yet again. So finally, I will hold you to this. Give me the team that will be in the Cotton Bowl out of the group of five uh, on, I guess it's New Year's Day this year, though I have not checked. That that might not be the case. Uh, but give me the team uh, that will be in the Cotton Bowl from the group of five, which will be uh, grabbing that New Year's six spot. Will it be the AAC for the fourth time in six years? Is it possible Boise goes back? to that game uh, for the second time since this system has been in place. Who you got, Chris? I'm going with UCF again. I, I, you know, just until I see them get knocked off their perch, I, I'm going to take it. I mean, the, the, I thought Josh Heupel last year did a really good job as a head coach. Didn't get, I think, enough uh, credit for it because he took over an undefeated team. But, he took, I mean, that's a team that comes in with a lot of pressure. And early in the year, things necessarily weren't clicking at times um, but by the end of the year they had things rolling and then I think Heupel did a great job with Daryl Mack when he had to replace Mackenzie Milton um, Daryl Henderson is not they don't have to play Daryl Henderson from Memphis this year which would help so uh, UCF is my my pick again but I think this could this there I think there could be six seven eight teams that maybe have a chance to to get that uh, New Year's six bid should be really fun I think in the group of five this year, I think UCF's closer to everybody else. Other teams have, have, have stepped up, and it should be a pretty fun race. Chris Vanini from The Athletic does a great job of covering five conferences. So all you guys who are out there covering one team or just one conference, poof, Chris has got five and does a great job of bringing you that coverage at The Athletic. Chris, man, uh, appreciate your time today. Thanks for taking us through all the uh, all the teams and all the conferences in the group of five. And uh, good luck uh, chasing it all down this season, and hopefully we will cross pads at a press box uh, during the season real soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Joining me next on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is Pete Sampson. I was just talking to uh, one of your colleagues from The Athletic, Chris Vanini. We did a, uh, a series of... Uh, of, uh, of conference previews on the group of five conferences. But I also wanted to get a little take on Notre Dame. Uh, you know, they, they, because the, the independent Irish don't fall into a conference, they, they don't come up with, throughout conference preview month here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. So, uh, but I, I figured they are worth a segment all to themselves. How are you, Pete? They are good, and I definitely can tell you that Notre Dame considered itself worth a segment all to themselves. Well, no, that... That is absolutely true. There is definitely no doubt about Notre Dame's uh, self-worth. Um, so the Fighting Irish are coming off of a, a undefeated regular season playoff appearance that didn't go very well, but maybe in some ways was more encouraging than their last uh, appearance in a game of that magnitude. Um, I will throw out this premise to you, and let me see what you think. I think that this season is a test of the foundation of the program. All those things that Brian Kelly has sort of talked about the last couple of years of how we're moving in the right direction. We have we have crossed into a different territory of where we are supposed to be. We are now a program that can compete at a high level every year. To me, this seems like a year that will test that. Uh, pretty tough schedule, some key losses on both sides of the ball. But, uh, you know, if you're going to be that type of program, you should be able to come up with another big season. I agree, although I would say like last season was kind of that way for me too. Uh, I mean, when I sat down with... Maybe they're all that way at at Notre Dame to a certain degree. I think that's that's a good place to be for Notre Dame because like before it was, what's the next catastrophe? And now it's, 
well, can you keep winning 10 games? And they've never been in a position in the last 20 years where it felt like there was anything sustainable about what was happening. It was just sort of each season was unto itself. It didn't really feel like Notre Dame was much of a program. It was just a series of teams one after the other. And I think that's, that's changed. So, I mean, I agree. It's, this is, this is a season where if that's really sustainable, if if you're for real, then you should go out and win 10 games. Um, And I think Notre Dame's sort of in a, a, a permanent, state of that now which is a healthy place to be because uh, they haven't been there i mean last year was the first back-to-back double digit win season since 92 93 it's been a long long time since they've been as healthy as they are right now so um you know reasons for pessimism are they have three monster road games here um reasons for pessimism they lost some very key pieces on a defense that was quite good last year and probably the strength of the team um Anything else I'm missing there as opposed to – we'll get to the optimistic parts. I definitely will go optimistic at some point. But as far as the things that would make you go, boy, uh, this is going to be a little problem of repeating another 10-win season. Yeah, I mean, they're starting Ted and Brooks' collarbone in practice yesterday. So that, that's, that's a reason to be uh, a little bit pessimistic as well. I mean, I, I sort of look at this Notre Dame team. If you had taken last year's team, and put them against this year's schedule, they, they wouldn't have gone 12-0, and 0, um, so they probably wouldn't have made the playoff either. The schedule is – it's a really good schedule to go 10-2 and two and an awful schedule to go 12-0. and 0. So, you know, there's – the defense, I think, to me, is the biggest reason to be concerned. Up the gut, you lose a first-round pick, Jerry Tillery, at defensive tackle, and then the Drew tranquil Tavon Coney combination at linebacker. That's, I believe, 210 tackles walking out the door. Um, and they don't really have guys ready to step into those roles right now. And you watch their preseason practices, and it's, it's, it's enough mixing and matching that makes you think, all right, they don't really have the answers today. Um, but you put that, that combination of things against going to Georgia and that offensive line and, and DeAndre Swift and Jake Fromm, and it's, it's just really difficult for me to see Notre Dame getting out of there with a win. And as soon as Notre Dame loses one game, you're, you're sort of on the cut line immediately for the playoffs. So it's, um, there's a, Notre Dame has its concerns. Um, but I think that any Notre Dame team going through Georgia against that Georgia team would have a really hard time winning down there. So let's think optimism. Optimism starts with Ian Book, who did a great job moving into the starting role last season, provided a different look for that offense and a little more steady, uh, quite frankly, accuracy and leadership uh, than Brandon Wimbush did. Uh, though the, the offense was never – it had its moments. It certainly had its moments of being dynamic and explosive, but it never really quite got to the point of being what you would call, you know, a formidable, high-scoring offense. Now it's probably looking at needing to be a little bit more like that. It probably needs to be a little bit more explosive and dynamic to make up for the fact that the defense might take a step back. It seems to be the theme of the season for Notre Dame going in. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, you need Book to be a guy, not just running the offense. And that is interesting to sort of spend some time with him this summer and talk to him about his offseason, about Manning Passing Academy you know, the private quarterback coach working with speed trainer. Uh, I mean, you just look at him physically. He is, he is not shirking out on the weight room at all. I mean, he looks much more like a dude now. And last year he was just, you know, last year was how do I get ahead of Brandon Wimbush this year? It's how do I put myself in the conversation with from Lawrence uh, Costello guy, you know, quarterbacks like that. That's, and, and Notre Dame needs that to happen. Um, they, they need him, need his self-belief to be, warranted and they need other people to sort of get on board with it Um, because if that doesn't happen they're not going to be able to be a a 35 point a game offense which is probably where they need to be to be a double digit win team Um, let's talk about weapons here because you lose a a pretty good receiver in miles boykin to the draft probably a little sooner than they had thought um, I, I think one of the things that you can sort of look at where Notre Dame is and why it is better in better shape now under Kelly than it was maybe five or six years years ago under Kelly is there seems to be a pretty steady flow of like, okay, this is the next guy. We clearly see who the next guy will be as far as a playmaker, as far as a running back and th- these th- things along those lines. Um, 
who are going to be the key playmakers on this team this year? I, I still look at them and think that they could maybe use a little more. Like, who steps up as the home run hitter on this team that Dexter Williams was in the second half of last year? Because I, I still am not sure if they have that. They have the home run hitters in the skill position. They have some good-looking players, but who could be the home run hitters in the skill positions? I think you know, Jafar Armstrong at running back, I think, will be very good. Uh, Tony Jones is a senior who's who's never really stayed healthy and hasn't been in great shape as like a bigger back. He's he's had a good camp so far. So I think that replacing Dexter Williams is not going to be too much of an issue. I think they're still trying to replace Will Fuller from 2015. I mean, they, they just haven't had a stretch-the-field threat vertically uh, since he left. So is that going to be Chase Claypool? Maybe. Um you know, he's a, built a little bit more like Miles Boykin. Chris Fink, I think, is very good, but, you know, it's not going to scare you with straight-line speed. It's it's more a question of, all right, can you get some of these sophomore receivers that was a really big class a year ago, Kevin Austin, Lawrence Keyes, Braden Lindsey, those are the three guys. If, if one of those three or two of those three click, then I think they've got a real uh, threat to push you vertically. Um and they, they just really didn't have that last year. Some of that was book. Some of that was Wimbush. But a lot of that was just they didn't have receivers who could separate from you. And I think that we all saw that in the Clemson game. Uh, and real quick, just to deal with the news, you're right. Uh, we're recording this the day after, or uh, I think the day after Cole Kemet um, yep. uh, broke his collarbone. Uh, now, that's a, that's a kid who could have been, has All-America-type talent. Doesn't sound yeah. like he will be out for the year, but he could be in danger of missing the Georgia game. Uh, they might not be Georgia with him or without him, so maybe that's not that big of a deal. <laughs> uh, but that's also usually a position where Notre Dame looks pretty good as far as depth. I know Brock Wright and a couple of other players. So what what do they do without Komet, and, and you know is it that big of a loss, at least for the first few games? For, I mean, for an offensive coordinator like Chip Long, who likes to run two tight ends, that's a big loss. Um, it's, nobody should cry for Notre Dame over tight end talent. Um, you know, Brock Wright, who's a junior four-star prospect, uh, Komet goes down yesterday. Brock Wright comes in and catches touch, touchdowns on the next two plays. So they'll, they'll be okay. But it, it certainly hurts their versatility. And Cole Komet was such a special, like, Tyler Eifert type of athlete where – you could line him out wide, sort of split by himself, because he could sort of play tight end like a receiver, but also can block like a tight end. Um, those guys are kind of rare, and that Notre Dame doesn't have another one like quite like that. But um, you're right; it just it's a versatility hit. Um, I think that you could make an argument that he was Notre Dame's best offensive skill position player. Uh, so if he's going to miss the Georgia game, that is a huge, huge loss. Um, I think that they'll be fine against Louisville and New Mexico, but um, that's a that's a big blow for their offense. Um, the offensive line has been, let's see, two years ago it was unbelievably good with two first-round draft picks and maybe the, literally the best college football player in the country in Quentin Nelson. Obviously, when you lose two guys like that and your offensive line coach, Harry, he's that you're going to take a little bit of a step back, and they did last year. To me, on offense, I think that's the biggest question about this team is, you know, they have they've got some that's the place where I look and see, oh, there's talent there. There's some there's some pros and some difference makers if they could get it at or the potential for them there to be pros and difference makers. I don't know if you're again, I don't know if you're ever gonna, you know, recreate McGinley um and Nelson on the left side of the line like they had a couple of years ago. But to me, the thing that could maybe propel this Notre Dame offense is some of these offensive linemen step forward and become big-time players. Yeah, they have a guard, Aaron Banks, who I think is going to be a future pro, kind of like a maybe day one or day two type pick uh, down the road. Their tackle position, I, I think, is sort of overrated in its stability, if that makes sense. I mean, I think people just sort of assume, well, it's Notre Dame, they're going to have good offensive tackles. And I'm I'm just not sure that they do. Um, again, I get to watch them go against Julian O'Farr all day, which is a really rough ask for anybody. But <laughs> right, right. they have a hard time getting a hand on him. And I, I'm not sure how good Liam Eikenberg at left tackle and Robert Hainsey at right tackle are going to be. I know the coaches are optimistic about it publicly and privately. Uh, Hainsey in particular, but um, this is—I think this is an offensive line that has five good players. But I don't think there's an elite player. There's no Quentin Nelson. There's no Mike McGlinchey, Zach Martin, Ronnie Stanley, Nick Martin, etc. I don't see anybody like that in that group. 
maybe somebody will grow into it a couple of years down the road. But I just think this is this is kind of one of those just okay lines by Notre Dame's standards. But again, it's like a tight end. Nobody should cry for Notre Dame over offensive line talent. They have plenty of it. Okay, one last thing on the defensive side of the ball are because the strength of this Notre Dame team probably maybe the team in general, not just one side of the ball or the other. While there are some questions up the middle on that defense, Notre Dame's got a whole bunch of pass rushers. And you mentioned Okwara and Khalid Kareem, and there's a couple other guys rolling in there. Uh, it would seem to be that that's the place where you're looking for a guy who could be a first-round draft pick in Okwara, guys to step up and really become like serious difference makers. Yeah, I think Okwara, you know, every defensive end is like, oh, I want to set the sacks record. But, like, Okwara has a really good chance to do it. Uh, he was unbelievable in their practice on Thursday. And, I, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say the offensive tackles could not get a hand on him. Um, you know, there was a play where Okwara just absolutely blew by Haynes, the next play, they put a tight end to his side and chip him with a running back just because that's the only way the offense can function. So he's – he is going to be a elite first team all American type of player. Uh, I, I think that the way I, I would compare him to sort of a lighter version of Cleveland Farrell last year uh, in terms of just how well put together and sudden he is. Khalid Kareem, Dalen Hayes is a senior defensive end, played a lot. Adeo Gandeja is a senior. It's, I mean, they have a depth chart where their five top defensive ends are all fourth year seniors, which is just hard to do. Um, I, I'm curious to see how they can take advantage of that because they're weak at defensive tackle, but they're incredibly strong at defensive end. Can you play a lineup with three DNs and one D tackle uh, most of the time? Because if they if they can figure out a way to make that work, it's a really athletic defense. Uh, all right, last thing is is sort of a big picture question again, starting where we we uh, going back to where we started, right? And that is this idea of okay, double digit wins. That's sort of the goal every year at Notre Dame. We're going to be a consistent playoff team. But again, I see at Michigan, at Georgia, and at Stanford, and I think, boy, that looks like a nine and three team to me. Which then that means you can't screw up anywhere else. Like if you have a bad day or a or a you know a, a ball bounces not your way or somebody gets injured against Virginia or Virginia Tech, now you're looking at like an eight and four team. So, I mean, where does Notre Dame where does where does sort of the Notre Dame fan base stand these days as far as will nine and three like be okay? In other words, are we gonna be are we gonna be like you know bouncing off the walls if they slip back to nine and three or if they or if by chance you know book gets dinged up and they have an eight and four season? Because again, I think the program is in really good shape, but because it's Notre Dame, we are so hyper focused on every week and every game that I could see, you know, again, eight and four, and all of a sudden Kelly's on the hot seat next year. But again, I, I don't think we should be at that point, but I could also see a season that turns into, you know, an eight and four season. Yeah. I mean, everything at Notre Dame is a referendum on everything at all times. Right. Um, so it's, could they go eight and four and people be happy with the season? No, I, I don't even know what qualifications you would have to put in. Like if X, Y, and Z happened that people would say, yes, I'll take eight and four. Well, not even happy, not, but just like yeah. be able to say, okay, you know what? Things happen. We'll, we'll get them next year. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think nine and three, you know, if book gets hurt, they're in trouble. Um, if they lose a starting offensive lineman, I think they would be in trouble. If they lose a starting defensive tackle, they're in big trouble. So there are there are things that could happen that would lead Notre Dame to not even sniff the playoff, let alone sort of contend for it in November. But I, I sort of look at Notre Dame this way. If they go 10-2 and two and they play and win a New Year's Six game, that is a really good season, full stop, no qualification. Um, I know that's not the world we live in with the playoff where everything is playoff or you're terrible. But Notre Dame is not Clemson or Alabama or even Ohio State where – if you don't make the playoff, people are disappointed. I think people will be happy if they go ten and two and play in the New Year's Six game. Nine and three, some weird stuff would have to happen, I think, for people to accept that. But nine and three is, is I think, probably the most likely outcome because Virginia comes to Notre Dame the week after you play at Georgia. Assuming the Georgia game goes the way that you think it's going to go, where not only do you lose, but you're probably beat up. That could be a tricky game because I think Virginia is, is sort of the toughest non-USC home game. Um, and then, you know, you've got Michigan and, it's, and at Stanford as well. So 
I don't know. It, if Notre Dame goes nine and three, I think it's going to be unsatisfying. Um, but I don't necessarily think it's like an affront to the senses. Brian Kelly should be fired. Notre Dame should join a conference either. Um, <laughs> nine, nine and three is just sort of like, eh, I guess. I think that would sort of be the uh, reaction from the fan base. Well, Pete Sampson covers the Notre Dame and does a terrific job of doing that for the athletic. Hey, man, listen, I appreciate your time and giving us the lowdown on Notre Dame. Enjoy the season. Hopefully we will cross pads at a press box uh, in the coming months. We definitely will. It's uh, probably a good sign for me if that happens. <laughs> gotcha. And now three and out. First down. So let's make some predictions. I wanted to go a different direction in the Sun Belt than App State because of the coaching change. But Georgia Southern plays road games at App State and at Troy, so that's not a great deal. I'll go chalky and take App State over Arkansas State in the Sun Belt. Conference USA, I think, has become the toughest conference in the country to project. So I'll lean toward the teams with the best quarterbacks and go FIU in the East and North Texas in the West with North Texas to win the league. And in the MAC, Ohio coach Frank Solich finally gets that elusive conference title for the Bobcats beating Western Michigan. And then maybe Solich calls it a career. Second down. In the Mountain West, Boise State is a perennial favorite, but has won only two league titles in the last six years. That said, I'll take the Broncos to get out of a tough mountain division, and I'm cautiously picking San Diego State to bounce back after a rough end of last season and win the West with defending champion Fresno State in a bit of a reload year. Quick dark horse in the West, keep an eye out for Nevada. As for the American... Chris Vanini thinks we're heading for a third straight Memphis-UCF title game. I'll say no. I think Memphis finally closes the deal this season, but either Cincinnati or Temple will track down the Knights in the East. I'll stick with Cincinnati because of the coaching change over at Temple. Who gets the trip to Dallas for the Cotton Bowl out of the G5? I'll take Memphis. That's good news. For Tigers fans, the bad news for Tigers fans is you'll probably be in the market for a new coach in December after Mike Norvell moves on. Third down. Time to make a pick on Notre Dame. I'm concerned about the losses on defense and a schedule that has three really tough road games that also leaves no room for error in a couple of home games that figure to be tricky, like Virginia, Virginia Tech, USC. As I said with Pete, I think this season will be a test of just how strong the foundation is at Notre Dame. While I tend to have a lot of confidence in Brian Kelly, I can't see the Irish doing better than 9-3 and three this year. That's the bonus show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts at Podcast One. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We'll put a wrap on our conference preview editions with the Pac-12 next week.